showtime. and Bill Show. Our guest this week started performing professionally in 1962 when he and high school buddy Steve Martin wowed the crowds at Disneyland as magicians. Then in 1966, he became a founding member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and spent the better part of the next 50 years making music with that iconic group. Please welcome to the Rosie and Bill Show, Hall of Fame artist, producer, author, and so much more, John McEwen. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Uh, or you're not Rosie, right? Okay, make no. sure. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Uh, I was listening to the introduction and it sounds kind of long. It's, uh, I, I'm just a banjo picker, but uh, <laughs> thank you for recognizing some of the other things. You're very well, welcome. That's very nice, but you, you before you, well, maybe not before, but in addition to being a banjo picker, you were also a magician. So I want to take it back to your days at, at Disney when you worked with your buddy, Steve Martin. What made you make the transition from magician to musician? Well, I liked performing in front of people. I liked doing tricks. I liked fooling people that were older than me and younger sometimes, and there was just something about it. I was a dork in high school. I was like, you know, I was like the kid that posed for the po poster of getting sand kicked in your face. Uh, it was my face the sand was getting kicked in, but doing magic made it possible to get them to be fooled, you know, and them being anybody in front of you. And that kind of broke a barrier for me. It made me love performing. It made me love telling stupid jokes in between doing tricks. And, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the world's smartest mathematical dog. Rover, what's two plus two? Woof, 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 woof. Come on, boy, one more. You know, things <laughs> like that. <laughs> and 
That was from 1965. But Steve Martin and I were both trying to get the job at the magic shop. We were 16 years old and we got the job on the same day. I celebrated by having lunch in Tomorrowland, tuna sandwich. It was really good. And uh, did that for three years. In the middle of that, yeah, right towards the end, the banjo came along and uh, it changed my life. After I saw the Dillards playing at a club in Orange County, the group that played the Darlin family on the Andy Griffith show, Doug Dillard went on stage and ripped up the banjo. They were new to Southern California and they'd been there about six months and I got their album and I started figuring out, figuring out how to play the five string banjo. I've been playing guitar for six months, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't that good at it. I could play freight train and a few things, but the banjo took me away. And then I had this dream that someday at 16, at 17 and 18 years old, 19 or 20, maybe someday I could record with Earl Scruggs because he came into my life musically right after as and during the Dillards. That's what led to Will the Circle Be Unbroken album. Well, had to have a group that started first, had to make some hits and some failures and then some more whatever. Uncle Charlie and his Dog Teddy album was the fifth album of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And that had three songs on it that reached the ears of Mr. Scruggs, thanks to Gary, his oldest son. I just have to just go back just for a quick second because this was pop this popped into my mind when it initially sounded like you and Steve might be competing for that magician job. So who was the better magician at Disney, you or Steve? I don't know if I could say because, well, one day I sold 156 Swingali decks. He only did 140, you know, so. <laughs> so is it safe to say you're a little competitive? Uh, <laughs> We're, we're somewhat competitive. It wasn't a competition though. Right. It was, uh, it was, hey, have you seen this one? Oh no, yeah. Have you said, how did you do that? How did you do that? Okay, yeah. It was more like having fun. It's like when the banjo came along. I was ahead of him on the banjo. And he is nice enough to say that I taught him how to play. He was really good. He is really good. In fact, I produced his album, The Crow, which was in 2010, and we won a Grammy for it. Thank you, Steve. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't competitive. Well, I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, as a young man, you even could, uh, because you have to practice a lot to become good at, at the banjo and at doing magic tricks. And it sounds like you had either just a, a great passion for it or just you're very disciplined as a young man. Yeah, I was uh, passionate and disciplined. I don't know. I, when I was going to college, I played eight and 10 hours a day. It didn't matter. And uh, sometimes 10 or 12. And, did you uh, finish college with playing that much? Or did you have a chance to pass any of your classes? <laughs> my first D was in the class of calculus. I was a math major. And when I was playing the banjo in the music room, I wasn't studying calculus. 
And I figured I'd do like I did all my other classes and I'd cram for the test. And you cannot cram calculus. I read four or five pages and I went, what? <laughs> I'll start over. And that's when I found out I was not a math major my second year of college. I got to the second year, respectfully. Right. And uh, bowed out because the dirt band had started the summer of just before the third year. It was 1966 and Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was getting underway. How did you come to join that band or were, or did you, were you one of the founding members of it? Well, I consider myself a founding member, but I wasn't there first. Les Thompson was there first, as was Jeff Hanna and Jimmy Fadden. And uh, Les called me up and said, hey, we're getting together at the music <laughs> store. Hey, we're getting together at the music store with a, you know, Jeff and Jimmy and you named a couple other guys. And, and we're going to have a band called Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Come play with us. I went, well, I'll see if you can learn this song that I've written. And you guys want to back me up at the banjo contest? And they said, yes. They really hadn't played in front of any big crowds before. And since I won the contest, I figured, yeah, this was July. And I'll stay in the group less. And we went out and started practicing. September, I got my brother to start managing us. By February 7th, we had our first record out. And we wondered what took so long. <laughs> oh and it uh, was just, it was miraculous. It was, I mean, I was the oldest one. I was 20 years old. Les was 17. Wow. Jeff 18. Anyway. How did you guys one. come up with that name? My brother, Bill McEwen, produced the album and took all the photos of the Dirt Band. And he had finished the record and was listening to the master ref, the reference master, the night before, well, the, the night after it was done. And he said, this, said it's just an album. Uh, get that tape of Uncle Charlie. He'd recorded his wife's Uncle Charlie, oh, four or five years earlier. And the guy was cool. He had an old dog. He'd get out from under the couch and come on, Teddy, let's make old Teddy sing. Sing with this harmonica. And he started Mr. Bojangles. And when it ended, I put it on. He goes, no, start it. Do it first. And I'll start. The dog starts howling. And that's when he started Mr. Bojangles. And then he called the engineer at midnight and said, Dino, meet me in the studio at eight o'clock. We've got a resequence. I'm cutting the album differently. And that's when he stuck in all the Uncle Charlie, Jesse James and the different pieces on Uncle Charlie, took the photographs he'd taken of Uncle Charlie and made this concept of this old guy sitting on a porch that somehow it worked. Somehow it worked, I don't know. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> My brother passed away a couple of years ago, and he was the George Martin of the Dirt Band. Oh, wow. I'm sorry for your loss. That's tough. That's a tough one. Well, it was. It has been. 
Yeah. But uh, one of the reasons when he gave me these photographs eight or nine years ago to do something with, I just said, Bill, the circle photographs have got to be used. More people need to see them. And what about the ones that you, that you haven't shown? This book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? The Making of a Landmark Album at 50th Year has 145 photos in it and 45 of them have never really been seen. Well, they've been seen by me and a few other people, but not by our fans or any, anybody else. And every photo has a story that I wrote behind it about what's going on, what was happening. In this 1967 photo we were working on, blah, 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 at the club and, you know, and then we get to the circle be unbroken sessions, 105 photos of that. And it was just really fun. It took me two years to write it. I've read a lot of reviews about the book. And one of the really neat things is I've seen where people have said, if you listen to the album and then read the book or then read the book and listen to the album or kind of do both simultaneously, it really takes you to where you think you're there. So I'm wondering, uh, you talked about the photos, but what kind of inspired you to take that two years and tell the story in the way that you told it? It took me two years. It didn't inspire me to take two years. I wish I could have done it in three months. <laughs> I had to rewrite it and then my brother died. I had to, I put it aside for several months. I couldn't stand to look at him. But then I said, I've got to finish this. The 50th year is coming up. Mm. And um, it was something that I needed that time, that break, because a lot of the photos had been written about, but I wanted to, to then get other people's opinions. The, the final third of the book is, oh, uh, Gary Scruggs and uh, Marty Stewart wrote a piece. Gary Scruggs wrote a wonderful piece. Uh, all the Dirt Band guys, they each wrote a couple, a couple pages. And Rodney Dillard, the reason I'm in the music business, thank you, Rodney. He had to, I had to have him say his piece about the Circle Be Unbroken album. Uh, Steve Martin, who my brother was managing by then, by 1970, 71. And he convinced Steve to come to Nashville. Steve was just a, he wasn't the Steve Martin yet, you know? He was just one of the comedians out there trying to make the magic shop jokes and his jokes work. And he hadn't found himself yet. That took a few years, but he had found the banjo and he had definite opinions of the Circle album and the artwork. And uh, so it, it took some time to put it together in the way that you say, that you've read or had people say that it makes them feel like they're watching the sessions. This is yes. like, this book is like watching a movie of the Circle album. You turn the page, there's Jimmy Martin and you find out what he was like, you find out what he said and you find out what Jeff said and different people. And then to get the guy's reactions, because we were all 21 through 24 years old and we were thrown into this pit of, wow, you know, the 
This is the Roy Acuff. This is Maybell Carter, the one, the woman who's been on those record covers around the music store we were practicing in. She was just a record cover. She was somebody, you're never gonna meet Maybell Carter. We're recording with her, Doc Watson from Deep Gap, North Carolina. We're cutting Tennessee Stud as a perfect, this is, oh man, I better be quiet. He's singing, you know, whatever. It was everything about that recording was magic to me. It started out, I wanted to have Earl Scruggs record the banjo with me. I wanted to do, I wanted to do Soldier's Joy with him picking and me doing frailing and with the bass. Well, that was done. That was done in one take. It took three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Earl, can we do it again? He goes, I don't reckon. Why did I mess up? <laughs> no, you didn't mess up. Well, did you mess up? Did you hit a bad note? I said, no, I got them all, but I just want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much. Well, let's move on to the next tune. We did 36 songs in five days. And wow, it was like uh, some of the things in the book are like the session log. And you can see the one session tracking sheet from one day, 11 songs. <laughs> and they're all masters. They knew their songs. All we did was play along with them. And with Junior Husky on bass and Vassar Clements on fiddle, you couldn't get too far from wrong. Uh, playing the, the banjo, I, I, I had all of Jimmy Martin's albums and I studied J.D. Crow, the banjo player. And, you know, I knew what to do. I couldn't do it exactly like J.D., but what I was doing seemed to work. Jeff was a great harmony singer and he got to sing with Doc Watson and Maybell and same with Jimmy Ibbotson and Jimmy Fadden playing harmonica with Jimmy said, I was really scared, but Vassar said, sit close to, sit close to me, son. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go through these together. We'll work out some parts. And that made him calm. Mm. And Les was the same way and uh, with the mandolin. And, and, but we found out, which I think I get across in the book, that these people were all fans of each other. Maybell Carter would say, well, Roy, it's certainly good to be in the studio with you, making the recording finally. And well, Maybell, it's good to be recording with you. Finally, we're doing, and these people had known each other 20 years and never recorded together. Jimmy Martin, uh, Vassar Clements had been on many of their records, never got credit, but he did on the Circle album. Uh, Merle Travis, you know, big fan of Doc Watson and the other way around. Doc named his son after Merle Travis. And anyway, it was, we found out the second day that this was like a love fest for them. And we were just getting to be part of it. The thing that I was curious about as you were talking about being in the studio with all of them, when you picked up your first banjo, as a young man, did you ever visualize working with these icons? And did you visualize that you would have the career that you've had? I visualized that I'd be doing music as long as I could stand up. 
And then I do it while I was sitting down for a while. <laughs> I visualized that, yeah, I wanted to do a job I didn't retire at. That as I got older, I maybe got a wider audience, uh, more people. Or if I didn't suck, if I wasn't lousy, if I made good things, that uh, something would come of it. Build it and they might come. Uh, I didn't visualize the Circle album being in the Library of Congress or the Grammy Hall of Fame. None of us did, although I expected the Library of Congress somewhere along the line. That took 25 years, but uh, I think it takes 25 years to be qualified. But. Uh, did they, John, did they retract that story from the paper after that happened by any chance, that initial story about what were they doing? <laughs> oh, no, no, they didn't. That just, <laughs> would have been nice. But that's okay. That was, uh, it actually gave the album some impetus, some something to go by, something to make it appeal to the younger people. Oh, sure. this is country music. Even the country music capital doesn't like it. You know, what is it? And uh, it was the, it, it's an album that's affected a lot of people. I have a lot of people that tell me, I was playing classical till I heard Bastard Clements on the Circle album. Then I never picked up another sheet of music. I tried to learn his solos. I, I was trying to figure out what to do and I heard the Circle album and wanted to get into radio and promote that record or sounds like that. Or, I didn't know what to do. And I heard the guy in grass school, Terry said, Junior Husky changed his life. And it was because of the circle album. And uh, a, a lot of people, you know, Allison Brown, uh, some of them aren't known, some are known. Vince Gill, Sam Bush, you know, it, it was an effect that continued to build as the album slowly continue, not necessarily snail slowly, but just down here slowly, you know, up and down, up and down. And in the last two years, it's been the top 30 of the Amazon, three different Amazon charts. It goes up to 20, 18, 10, five, and then down, back down to eight, and then to 17, and up to 10. But that's, that's really something for a 50 year old record. But thanks to the Ken Burns special country music, Ken Burns put out and I got to close the last 20 minutes of the episode six, which was called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Thank you, Mr. Burns and Dayton Duncan. And uh, they wrote the foreword for this book of photographs of my brother's photographs, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan. and. I thought that was very special. Boy, I was afraid to ask him. I mean, he's such such huge names, you know. Would you would you write a forward for my book? You know. Oh, be proud to. Good. And uh, one of my favorite contributors, getting her thoughts was Rita Forrester. Rita Forrester is the granddaughter of A.P. Carter. He says, Yeah, Aunt Maybell used to say. Those dirty boys, they were really fun to record with. They, always, <laughs> they always called us the dirty boys. 
fine with me. That's so sweet. That's just really cute. I like that. John, what does it feel like for you? How gratifying is it for people to make, to share with you those things about how, the impact that album had? It's, it's of course gratifying, but for 45 years, I've been hearing, because the first five, we were out working all the time and the record was just getting out there and the record company only made 25,000. They sold out like that. And the first day they were gone. The billboard would call, how many you sell this week? None. How many you sell this week? None. How many you sell this week? None. Because it would take five weeks to make another 25,000. And five weeks would go by, another 25,000 to get out there, they're gone. Five, six weeks would go by, and the next shipment would get out there, it's gone. You know, and it took a while. So if you do 25,000 units every six weeks, well, it takes a while to add up to 200,000. Takes eight, 24, well, whatever, you do the math. I was a math major. I'm not an <laughs> Then they finally made 50,000 units, and that's did the same thing. And so the word didn't jump out there. It crept out there mm. with Bill Monroe, who was one guy that said, no, he didn't know if we were oh, going to put drums on his music or electric guitars or, or anything. You know, Bill Monroe thought everyone had a right to his opinion. And uh, <laughs> let you know that. He only listened to Bill Monroe music. And he came up to me six or seven years later, I was opening for him at a festival. And he said, hey, John, if you ever do another one of them Circle albums, give me a call. Huh. Okay, Mr. Monroe, I will do that. And uh, he, he died before the next one came up. But uh, that was... Uh, really uh, really something to have him say that yeah that's a heck of a compliment that was a compliment from mr monroe yes yeah. and i even tell the story about josh graves in the book josh graves is a dobro player that played with flatten scrubs in the 50s i had called him to be part of the album and he was all excited new 10 days later he calls me back and says, hey john i'm sorry to tell you this but Lester Flapp says, as long as I'm on his salary, he doesn't want me picking with Earl. So I got to say I can't do the sessions. He was working for Lester Flapp at the time, and Lester didn't want him playing with Earl. Hmm. That really bummed out Josh Graves. I got him on my first album, though, my String Wizards album on Vanguard. He's all over that. People fought differently then, you know? And why didn't they put Vassar Clements on records? When Earl told me, I found a fiddler, I said, well, you one guy? Well, his name's Vassar Clements. And I said, well, what has he done? Can he do it all? And Earl said, he'll do. And I went, okay. Let's see, Earl Scruggs just told me he'll do, and he must know. Well, I didn't know Vasher had played with Jim and Jesse and Jimmy Martin and Bill Monroe and 
uh, I think he even played with Scruggs on a couple things, Flatten Scruggs, and various other people. I asked Vasher one night in 1976, I'll never forget, four years after the Circle album, I said, how do you play Uncle Penn, Vasher? And he goes, and he goes, man, you, you, learn off, you learn that off the Bill Monroe record? He goes, John, that was me on that record. I was 17. And it was, oh, yeah, <laughs> you were there. Well, I'd found out he'd been on a lot of records I'd been, that I had in my house. And it was wonderful to have him there. I've got one last question for you, John. Again, we really appreciate these incredible stories you're sharing with us and we know our viewers will as well. After all you've done and all you've accomplished over the years, is there anything that's maybe on your to-do list, anything that you haven't done that you would like to set out to do at some point? Well, I'd like to get an Oscar nomination for a piano song uh, theme that I've written for a movie. That's one. And I think it's good enough if I can get it in front of the right people. I'd like to record with Paul McCartney. I came close. Or uh, John Fogarty. And, and, uh, and I'd like to do some of my music with an orchestra. Mm. And I have orchestra charts for 25 minutes of music. Some of it being mine, some of it being Mason Williams. And uh, Mason's a good friend of mine. And anyway, yeah, there's a few things. I have an album of spoken word with music score behind it. Music that I've written, put out there. And I'm gonna put out a spoken word album next year on Compass Records that has various poems with music behind it, different types of music, different, it, it's hard to, it sounds really boring in a way if you're just talking about it, you gotta hear it. <laughs> I hope some people say, I gotta hear that. I'm sure they will. Does it's your wife sing? Uh, she sings beautifully, yes. And she has only sung on stage maybe a half a dozen times, but three of them were at the, <laughs> three of them were at the Grand Old Opry. <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> honey, would you come out with a backup and do the, okay. Is she and, shy or does she enjoy it? I don't know how much she enjoys it. And yes, she's shy until the moment comes and, then it goes. She's really a good singer. And it's pretty impressive when you can say that half your performances have been at the Opry. Well, yeah, she, she uh, <laughs> didn't sing in the bars. She didn't spend three years on a bus. You know, she just walked out on the Opry stage. <laughs> She's no fool. <laughs> She's cutting to the chase, yeah. right? Yeah, that's the only stage she'll work on. <laughs> anyway. I like that. John, my gosh, we could talk to you all afternoon because you have such great stories and such a rich history. And we are looking forward to um, your spoken word album and all of the goals Hi. that you want to accomplish. Hello. Hi there. I heard my name. <laughs> you are amazing. Bill just said half of your career has been on the Opry stage. 
<laughs> John just does. Oh yes, yes. But yeah. It's it's something I love doing, but not enough to do it on my own. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> like I don't it. blame you. I don't blame you if you can just get up on stage when when uh, the opportunity permits. That's the way to go. All right. <laughs> Good night. Well, thank you for 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 joining us. That was really a great little talk there. <laughs> uh, and for our viewers, our viewers won't know this, but uh, they're both in Italy right now, and we've we've kind of taken them out of the vibe of their vacation just for this this brief half hour but uh we're we're so glad that you guys came on the show and and took time out of your vacation to talk with us we really appreciate this is it an important book and i feel like it, people should know about it and i'm very proud of the fact that it is doing well well enough to know that in the first week of release they're talking about a third third printing and trying to get it scheduled right after the second printing and then we'll go to the fourth printing and hopefully it'll keep going, you know. So thank you. It's important to me to get the word out. Well, we will do everything we can to do that. And uh, Bill, you know what your Christmas present's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty good idea and I'll, I'll enjoy those photographs. <laughs> well, you can get an autographed copy at landmarkbooksellers.com. They're in Franklin, Tennessee. That's okay. Land Landmark Booksellers, Franklin, Tennessee, or Barnes and Noble and Amazon, all the normal places. They seem to have them. Wonderful. Run out. That's wonderful. John, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your book. And thanks for the music that you've given to all of us over the years. We appreciate it. And we wish you all the best of luck. Folks, Ciao. thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next week.